morning. Glad you're here. Let's open up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. We continue to move verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through. I'm going to get to verse 5. It's a transitional verse. Uh, the danger of drifting. The danger of drifting. That's the uh, title tonight. Let's stand to our feet if you're able to stand with us for the reading of these verses. Chapter 2, book of Hebrews, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word, Hebrews 2.2, spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received just a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was the first, at the first spoken through the Lord, It was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness to them by signs, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he did not subject uh, to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Father, as we look at these power-packed verses and we look at the danger of drifting, we realize that Uh, drifting is a very real danger. It's a very real issue. In fact, many of us could probably picture faces right now that were once uh, professed, committed believers that have drifted away. And tonight we want to see the, not just the danger, but the antidote, the, uh, the way that we can remedy this issue. Help us to have insight from your word. Help us to understand what you would say to us tonight and help us to apply your word to glorify you, I pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. You can have a seat. The danger of drifting. You may be surprised by this, but I used to be a surfer. It's true. It was many moons ago, but uh, I surfed a lot in high school. And a couple of times I tried to make a comeback uh, in my older years. I remember we stayed down by uh, Newport Beach one time, my wife and I. And I went into the surf shop there, and I rented a surfboard. And the one I picked out after I told the girl, I'll take that one, she laughed at me, which I wasn't quite sure how to interpret that. (laughs) But uh, apparently it wasn't really a board that they rented too much, but I thought it looked fine to me. Well, when I went out there, I had forgotten how much work it was just to paddle on a surfboard. Anybody? Can I get a witness, right? It's like, it's work just to get past those waves and sit there for a while and try not to fall over, try to look cool as you sit there, let alone catch a wave and then stand up and then paddle back out. Uh, one thing I remember, though, when sitting out on a surfboard uh, many, many times is, you know, we would come with a group of people and we would often sit by a lifeguard stand and, you know, at Newport and so forth, they have numbers on them. So let's just say that we were at 18th Street and you'd go out and you'd be on your board and you could pretty much see the numbers, you know, on the lifeguard tower. And as you sat there and waited for a wave, inevitably what would happen is you would do what? You would begin to drift. And the way that you could kind of see where you were is, I used to be over here kind of aligned with Lifeguard Tower 18, but uh, inevitably, if I just sat on my board, I would drift and drift and drift. And especially if I did nothing, like paddle back where I belonged, uh, I could be a long way away from where I started. 
All it takes to drift is to do nothing. Just to sit there on your board and the natural flow of the current can take you off course. And there are a lot of people, you know, we describe it this way in our culture. A lot of people just go with the flow. And they end up maybe at places that they didn't suspect they would be. That is uh, the reality of drifting. One of the ancient symbols of the church is a ship. And one of the great scenes in the Gospels is the disciples there crossing the Sea of Galilee and the storm came. And they were being tossed, you know, here and there by the wind and the waves. And they were contrary to them. And they were stressed out and they were rowing and Jesus finally came to them walking on the sea. And do you remember the words that Jesus shared with them? They were afraid, they were fearful, they were wondering how it was gonna end and Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. And then in Matthew's account, this is Matthew 14 starting in verse 22, he says to them, why did you doubt? Why were you afraid? Didn't you know that with me in your life I would get you to your intended destination. And so the, the church not only grabbed the idea of a ship to depict the early church in the winds and the waves of culture and difficulty, but an anchor became a symbol of early Christianity as well. In fact, before there was ever a cross as the main symbol that would be on churches, the anchor was an ancient symbol of the cross. And I think you all know what that means. That means that we have an anchor in the storm and he will hold us in place and hold us where we need to be. And so uh, this is the first of five major warning passages found in Hebrews. If you're interested, they are Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, if you're taking notes. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. In chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. We're going to get to all of those. Each of these passages in the book of Hebrews have troubled many a soul over 2,000 years of church history. Here's why. Because they brought up some questions about who is it that the writer is writing to. It doesn't seem that he's writing to a group of people who have never heard the gospel. That's going to be obvious. Are these people believers? Have they drifted away so far that now their own salvation is in question? This has kept some people up at night who have concerns about doctrines like eternal security and whether once someone commits their life to Christ, could they lose their salvation? And these particular issues have been deb debated back and forth by a lot of good people. And here's what I will tell you tonight. I'm gonna let the Bible speak for itself We'll come to some conclusions in terms of, you know, what we see in the text. But I'm not going to jump right out and tell you, okay, well, you can just hang your hat on this particular doctrine and here's what we got. Let's let the Bible speak for itself. Because many of us know that people have certainly drifted away. One writer said, undoubtedly, um, there will be people who never actively opposed Jesus Christ in their lifetime, but simply neglected the gospel. There will be people who end up under judgment who didn't really reject the gospel but neglected it because neglecting the gospel is essentially to reject the gospel. 
Now, when we look at warning passages like this, what should we do with them? How can we understand them? I will submit to you that a very good thing to keep in your pocket is the parable of the sower that Jesus told or the parable of the soils. And Jesus talked about different responses to the gospel. He called it the gospel of salvation. Other gospel writers would call it the gospel of the kingdom. And people hear the word of God, but their, their uh, growth, their fruit will depend upon what type of soil they actually are. And so this early church was facing persecution. It wasn't popular to be a Christian in many areas of the world. We, uh, when we did the opening teaching on this, I submitted to you that this is probably an early church of Hebrew believers in Rome. We are near the, what's called the Neronian persecutions. That is the persecutions under Nero who set fire to certain areas and blamed the Christians. There was a dispersion of Jews around AD 49 under the emperor Claudius. And there was a lot of difficulty going on. And for many early Jewish believers, it would be easier to go back to the synagogue, go back to the temple practices, go back to the law and fit in instead of standing out like a sore thumb because you've decided to be a Christian. Let me give you kind of a parallel example. Someone comes to faith in a Muslim country. They, uh, let's say they have a vision of Christ. He appears to them in a dream, which has happened in Muslim-dominated countries. We've had Muslim people hear the gospel on Christian television and radio. They commit their heart to Christ. Now what happens with their family? A lot of pressure. If not physical persecution, there can certainly be mental persecution. Uh, people can be told, you're not my child anymore, or you're not part of this family anymore. You have a person who's in a cult. Uh, many of you know the major cults in America. Someone becomes a Christian, goes back to their family and says, I'm now a Christian. But the family is all one thing, one religion. And now that person has to take a stand and theologically, they may be convinced that the Christian faith is the correct faith, but practically, they may not be prepared for the pressure that's going to come with that decision. And so these are the very real issues that were facing the uh, uh, ancient church as well as facing people today. And so the writer says, for this reason, Hebrews 2.1, if you have an ESV, New King James, therefore... And the therefore, or for this reason, whenever we're reading our Bibles, we look back. If the writer says, for this reason, or therefore, he's connecting it to what was written before. Now, chapter one celebrated the superiority of Jesus, that he is the creator, sustainer of the universe. Verse three, chapter one, take a look. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, when he had paid for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen? Jesus Christ paid for our sins at the cross. From the cross, he says, it is finished. He was raised, Romans 4.25 for our justification. We now, being in Christ, have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. The gospel is amazing. The gospel is 
gives us true peace with God. We are reconciled to God. Now, the writer of Hebrews has been making the case for the superiority of Jesus to everything else, to angels, to the old covenant. He's the creator, the sustainer. He is the one that we look to. And I think that case is amazing. Christ is all that this letter clearly asserts in chapter one. But if he is, then would to God that we would anchor our hope to him. Would to God that we would not drift away because of pressure or because of many other things. Let me just say to you, if I were to ask you right now, uh, what do you think makes people drift? What might you say? Well, I, let me make a few suggestions. Familiarity. Sometimes we are Christians. We grow up in a Christian home. We've been in the Christian church. We know the right lingo. We know the major stories. We kind of have a handle of the doctrines. And familiarity all of a sudden can make us be a little negligent, a little negligent of our Bibles. Maybe we are a, a person who is just flat out gotten busy. Life can be <laughs> racked with busyness, right? I mean, there's so many things pulling for our attention. If you have a young family, if you own a business, if, you know, there's many things that can make us busy. And all of a sudden, we put our Bible aside for a day, and then it's two days, and then it's three days, and then it's a week, and then it's two weeks. And then someone, someone asks, well, when's the last time you read your Bible? And you're like, you know, 2003. <laughs> yeah. Except when I come to church, then I carry it in. There's a, there's a lot of different things that can happen that can move us away. For this reason, what's the antidote? We must pay much closer attention what we have heard, notice, lest we drift away. That's verse one. The word drift is a Greek word which means to flow by, to carelessly pass, to miss, to drift away, to let something slip by. Plato used it for a ring on your finger that was a little too big and slipped off and you lost your ring. The idea of the original word means to drift past. Uh, it's a nautical word suggesting the image of a ship whose anchor is broken free from the ocean, says one writer, and it's dangerously drifting away. And when I was uh, growing up, my mom, a very overprotective mom, she may be watching right now, so I'll be careful how I say the things that I, I say, but she would say th these things to me. I'd be leaving the house and she'd say, Michael, be careful. And then it became, be careful in your activities. And it became, be careful in your daily activities. And one time she said to me, Michael, do you watch the road when you drive? And I said, Mom, no. I try to look off to the side the whole time. <laughs> and, and you all know that if you have taught a, a class or you have a friend that's easily distracted, Sometimes what we want to scream out, and sometimes we literally do, we do something like this. Pay attention! Uh, I was teaching a, a class, Bible release time, a couple years back, and I had a really squirrely kid. He could not sit still. And so I had to give him things to do 
uh, to kind of keep him focused. And he was there, there and Pastor Michael, and you wouldn't believe what I, when we went over the other day, we were over here and then we were over there. And we were, I was like, can these out? <laughs> Pay <laughs> attention, right? And we all know that when we're sharing something that we think is significant, we would like people to pay attention. Pastors deeply appreciate when people are going, yeah, 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 and not going. (laughs) So the writer says, if you are prone to drift, there's something that you need to do. You need to pay close attention. Have you ever been on the road and maybe you saw a car begin to move across, you know, kind of get out of the center of the lane and maybe even move across to another lane? Or maybe you had to move over real quick to avoid uh, a car. I remember we were coming back from Mexico on a trip and uh, we were in this elevated truck. And I looked down and this car was kind of swerving back and forth and looked, you know, kind of looked like the guy was drunk. And I was able to look down and peer into the the cab and this man was slapping himself across the face. (laughs) And I'm like, what is this, a bad movie or something? Well, what was happening is he was falling asleep and he was trying to battle uh, not falling asleep. And so you can, you can tell that when, when someone's drifting, have you ever done this before? Maybe don't, maybe don't tell someone who'll get mad at you, but have you ever kind of caught yourself when you were driving and thought, you know, I haven't even paid attention to the road for the last five miles. <laughs> I have no idea how I even stayed in the lane. So I used to play a lot of slow pitch softball and we went to Las Vegas and we played in this tournament all day. And in these slow pitch tournaments, it was double elimination. And so you could play from morning until evening. We, we probably played 10 games. We were in the championship game. It was late at night, about you know a good five hour drive to come back from Vegas. I was the drummer on a worship team. I had to be at church at seven in the morning. I wasn't gambling in Vegas, just so you know, I was playing softball. So we went out to dinner. We played the last game. It was, a, it was a long day. So many softball games. So much energy, uh, you know, given. Ate dinner. Had a big cup of coffee and decided I'm driving back. And I, I probably got on the road. I don't know what it was. It was probably 11 o'clock at night. So, you know, it was hitting 2.33 in the morning. And I remember I was on the 15 freeway. And I began to look at the lights. And I began to see different animals in the lights. Like I looked up and the light went, roar. whoa, wait a minute. And so I started doing that slapping thing too and poking myself in the eye. No, just kidding. But uh, I kind of snapped out of it, you know, rolled the windows down, turned the music up, got home, and there was a huge accident on the 15 freeway. Uh, About if I would have pulled over or something, I probably would have been involved or somehow held up by that accident. Anyway, Here's the point. Usually when someone's drifting, something else is going on. Either they're not paying attention or they're asleep or have you ever done this? A car looks like the person may be drunk and then you, you give them, ever give them the look like, what in the world's wrong with you, right? And you can see that they're on their phone or they're doing their makeup. <laughs> see, we drift when we're distracted. We drift when we're not paying attention. 
We, we, there's a number of things that could be at the root of this. But when you drift, if you take the ship imagery, you can pass the warning signs. Uh, I read a pastor this last week who said that he used to regularly fish and he would, you know, kind of anchor the boat and he would begin to fish. And he didn't realize one time that his anchor got pulled up and he almost crashed his boat into the rocks because he just didn't realize where he was. This is the imagery that the writer is using. Most people who have nothing to do with the church these days and the like in America probably have heard the gospel, may even have some background in the things of the Lord, but they have drifted away. C.S. Lewis put it this way. And as a matter of fact, if you examined 100 people who had quote-unquote lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many, how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. And then he says these words, do not most people simply drift away. Now, when, the, when you get the imagery of drifting, it's kind of like a slow drift. It's not like someone just decides, okay, I'm gonna turn around. Uh, usually it, it's, a, it's a process, right? It's a slow chipping away. And all of a sudden, one drifts away. And so the antidote is to pay closer attention. Now, the, some of the ideas, go to chapter 5 in Hebrews, of the, the word drift speaks of carelessness, not paying attention. Notice what happens here. The writer says of this group in Hebrews 5, verse 11, he's talking here about Melchizedek, this uh, mysterious figure that he picks up later in the book. And he says, concerning him, Hebrews 5.11, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, Hebrews 5.12, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God or the word of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Would you see with me that what's happened to these people is they've become, verse 11, dull of hearing. They've become careless in the things of God. They ought to be teaching others by this time, but they still need milk. They certainly haven't grown so you can see the idea of drifting here is not necessarily all about pressure and persecution. Some of it has simply been a matter of neglect. So let's turn back to chapter one. This is how Stedman puts it. It's not necessary to openly renounce the gospel. One can remain lost by simply and quietly drifting away from hearing it. He warned them not to be carried away by the popular opinions that surrounded them. Don't get pulled away from the saving gospel. That's the point. It's so easy to drift. All you have to do is nothing. Take a relationship as you turn to Matthew chapter four. Let me show you the parable of the sower. Think about relationships. Think about a friend. If you're married, think about your spouse or your courting you're dating somebody. That relationship 
the investment of that relationship will determine the quality of that relationship. Amen? Uh, there is naturally in relationships a drift. There was a great uh, gold, medallion, gold medallion winner book uh, written by the president of Family Life, Dan Dennis Rainey, and he called the book Staying Close, and it was a book about marriage. And here's what, the basic premise of the book was this, that marriages, when you first get married, of course you're excited and all that stuff and everything's new, but marriages, he said, naturally drift towards isolation. That will be the natural thing if you do nothing. And his argument in the book was in, in order to keep a relationship from drifting, you have to be intentional. Date nights, uh, talking, you know, making sure that you touch and all of those love languages that many of us have learned about. And with your relationship with the Lord, because we do say it's a relationship, do we not? We don't say we're just checking boxes. We're not, you know, uh, trying to keep a religious scorecard. We want to develop a relationship with the Lord. Now, I want you to think this through with me. If the quality of that relationship is not where it needs to be, then when persecution and trouble comes, what might happen? Well, you might respond one way if you were really close. You might respond another way if you've already been distant. A, a, an occurrence that might draw you closer might push you away from one another. Now think with me. In the last couple of years in the church, we've, we've experienced some unprecedented issues, correct? We're looking at moral issues in our culture that are as crazy as we could ever, you know, I could ever remember in my lifetime, not to mention the COVID stuff and all of that. The response of the church to trouble, storms, persecution, and the like, uh, the quality of our response will have to do with the quality of our closeness. That's true in human relationships. That's true in your ultimate relationship with God. Amen? This is not rocket science. But to me, when I look at the response of the church to different issues in our day, I have to be asking the question about this reality. Have we drifted? Well, we've got a lot to garner our attention. I mean, we've got social media, we've got media, you know, things where hundreds of years ago when people were retiring for the night, they didn't have a ton of options. They read books <laughs> by candlelight. And so I know that we all have our own challenges to stay on track. And some of us have a difficulty with that just kind of naturally. But my point is this, I think we're seeing the result of a slow drift. Would you agree? And so the remedy is for us to pay close attention. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Check out the parable of the sower or the soils. This is uh, Matthew. Oh, where am I now? Actually, go to Mark. Sorry about that. Matthew, Mark 4. Mark 4, 16. In a similar way, and Jesus is talking about the second soil, the stony ground hearer of the word of the gospel. Mark 4, 16. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed, seed is the word of God here, was sown on the rocky places. 
who when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. Mark 4, 17. And they have no what? Firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. I want you to notice something about this particular soil. When the word came, when the seed was thrown on that particular soil, there was an immediate response and there was joy. But the problem was the root wasn't firm. The root wasn't deep. It was only temporary. And what caused the falling away is very key to our text. It was affliction and persecution. It arose because of the word and immediately these folks fell away. Let me read a little bit from my notes. In Israel, much of the land is a thin two to three inch veneer of soil over limestock, I'm sorry, limestone bedrock. Here, uh, some of the seed falls. The warm sun quickly heats the seed in the shallow soil and the seeds sprout in feverish growth. But then the sun beats down, the plant's roots meet the bedrock and it withers and dies. We've all seen this happen you see somebody, they hear the gospel, there's a euphoric response, they run down the, the aisle, they come forward at Angel Stadium, whatever it may be. They plunge down from the stands at the Billy Graham Crusade. I mean, so many people have gotten saved at Billy Graham Crusades, you'd think every church would be full in America, right? Uh, but then what happens? Well, I'll tell you what happens, because I did follow-up for the Harvest Crusade for many, many years. And let me just say, I think the Harvest Crusade is a wonderful thing. I think Greg faithfully preaches the gospel and I think people genuinely get saved there. But I've done some follow-up where I made 10 phone calls and you would have never known that these people on the other line even went to the crusade. Oh, I went down because one of my buddies went down to the field. Oh, I went down because I wanted to pick some grass where Mike Trout hangs out in center field and put it in my pocket. Oh, I went down because it was an emotional moment or whatever. And I'm not saying that they were all that way. But sometimes, you know, you see a person respond quickly and, and it seems like they're going to serve the Lord for the next 50 years. But how many people do you know who have simply drifted away. Where are they? Well, if you were to interview them, they might say something like this. Oh, I'm, I'm a believer. I love the Lord. The Lord knows I love him. You ever heard this one before? The Lord knows that I love him. Well, do you serve him? Do you, are you doing it? No. But the, the Lord knows my heart. Yeah, he does. But he also measures hearts. <laughs> He also said that he's the king and you're his servant. There are some expectations. So the soil here represents shallowness. And the heat of trials and persecution reveal the condition of the soil. There's no deep root. And the heat that might, you know, cause one who's committed to go deeper causes one who's shallow to fall away. And you can imagine... The plant before our eyes quickly withers and dies and that's it. And so this is the stony ground convert. Convert in, quote, in quotes. Luke 8, 13 puts it this way. Those on the rocky soil are those who when they hear receive the word with joy. 
They have no firm root. They believe for a while, Luke 8, 13. And in time of temptation, they fall away. The word fall away is scandalizo, which means to stumble, to fall, to be scandalized. I think some people are just not quite prepared for what they may face as a believer. And this is why I think it's important that we tell people to count the cost, right? That we give as much of the full counsel of God as we can back to Hebrews chapter two so that people understand that every circle that you run in, Jesus is not going to be always popular. Have you discovered that? Sometimes you're gonna bring Jesus up and there's a real true reception that's positive and people are open and people are, you know, gracious but in some company, it is hard that when you mention Jesus or you say, I'm a Christian, you may not get a standing ovation for that. It can be hard. I've, I've ended up in some hard spots where I was not the most popular person in the room. But I had some mentors in my life tell me that when I signed on the dotted line for ministry, I wasn't trying to win a popularity contest. Now, I like to be liked. I'm a human like everybody else. I, I like it when I get along with people. I'm a man of peace. I like to be at peace with people. But I've real, I realize that when I preach the gospel, I may, may be set at odds with people. I stood up here not that many months ago. I was preaching at a memorial service for a family that I didn't really know. I began to preach a text that was very familiar to me. And I watched a family member roll their eyes and go, oh, my God. Goodness, you gotta be kidding me. As I go, well, yeah, here we go. This is great. You know? Uh, that's the, that's the, my opening comment, first minute into my message. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> that's encouraging as a speaker, I can tell you. I've have, had people get up and walk out, people from our own praise team. It's shocking when it, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. They get up early because they go get ready for the last song. If you ever wondered, why are they getting up? Does Pastor Michael offend them every single week? No. <laughs> I remember I was teaching on uh, biblical masculinity and what God has for biblical femininity. And I was teaching from a passage and I uh, opened the word of God and I taught it and, you know, wasn't the most popular thing in today's culture. And a couple young ladies got up and they walked out. And uh, it's like, well, I didn't come to please them. I try to be as gracious as I can be. But truth has a way of kind of dividing some things, right? Um, so thank you for <laughs> that anyway. <laughs> Verse 2, Hebrews 2. For if the word spoken through angels, now we're, we're looking at the, the first covenant, the old covenant. Uh, it came through the mediation of angels on Sinai. That covenant proved unalterable. There was no wiggle room in it. Every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. The NIV puts it this way, Hebrews 2.2, if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just, just punishment. So under, under the old covenant given at Sinai, just think of the Ten Commandments. Here's what would happen. There was a law given. You broke that law, and you got your just desserts for it. 
You broke the Sabbath day, the punishment was severe. You committed adultery, the punishment was severe. You blasphemed the name of the Lord, punishment was severe. And it was basically, you do this, this is what happens to you. It proved unalterable, no wiggle room. The argument here, very common in scripture, is going from the lesser to the greater. If breakers of the law did not go unpunished, certainly despisers of the gospel cannot expect to do so. If you neglect the saving gospel, this is what all these warning passages in Hebrews is about. If you walk away from Christ, what's left? How do you deal with your sin? How can you be right in the sight of a holy God who thundered from Sinai if you reject the one way that you can come to the Father and be right? You got nothing left. I'll give you an example. I've shared this story before, but it's very relevant. I had a friend, and he was a preacher, and he addressed a group like this, and he used the example of Peter going back fishing after the resurrection. And there were people sitting there that had drifted away. I knew some of them personally. And he said, he, he talked about Peter going back fishing, and he said, some of you have gone back fishing. How is it? And you could have hear, heard a pin drop. We could put it this way, the writer of Hebrews, some of you have drifted away. How is it? And if you try to do life without the saving Christ, you're gonna stand before God and you're not gonna be cloaked in his righteousness. So this is no light thing. Now, we were in the prayer room before this service and we were all rejoicing in the gospel, rejoicing in the imputed righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You're no longer counting my sins against me in Christ. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But if you go back to the law, my Jewish friends, this writer might be saying, if you go back to the animal sacrifices which have been fulfilled in Christ and you go back and you think that by doing this and the blood of bulls and goats, they can never take away your sin. Christ has come. You can't go back to the shadows. There's nothing in them. There's no saving power in them. If you leave Christ, you got nothing. And so that's what he's saying. See, Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, delivers us from the wrath to come. God has not destined us for wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If the old covenant was unalterable, how much more the gospel? And how shall we escape, verse 3, if we neglect, if we drift away from such a great salvation? Seven times in the book of Hebrews, the word salvation, soteria, is here, and that salvation was first of all spoken through who? Verse three, through the Lord. Do you know who first announced the gospel? Jesus. Repent, 
For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Amen. Now, John the Baptist prepared the way, but Jesus was the one. And we're going to study this in Matthew 4 coming up on Sunday. Jesus, right out of the gate, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Jesus is the one who began to preach the gospel. And if you reject the gospel, you've rejected the Lord Jesus. And if you reject the Lord Jesus, then what gospel do you have left? Basically, you're saying, I don't believe you. I don't believe repent and believe the gospel is the way to heaven. I think there's some other way. I, I think I can go my own way. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and he said, the time is fulfilled, Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is hugely important because the gospel came through Jesus Christ. The records are before us in our New Testament. The four gospels are the records of what Jesus came to do, what he preached, how he died, how he resurrected, and his interaction with the world, with the apostles, etc. This is the record that we have. The Lord preached the gospel first. So the writer, in a pastoral way, is saying, if you reject the gospel, you've rejected Jesus. It seems that everybody is good with a Jesus of their own creation. Until you read things that he said in the New Testament. Like, no one comes to my Father except through me. Well, that's narrow. Yeah, it is. But at least there's a way. And think about how he blazed the trail, how he made a way. So the warning comes to these Hebrew Christians who are feeling the pressure much in the same way as we feel it in today's society. It's hard sometimes. We start arguing the biblical moral values of the Bible. And you know there's a whole group of people that don't want to hear it. They, they think we're out to lunch. They think we're crazy. But the gospel itself, because that's the main issue here, is a message that says there's a way, but you've got to come God's way or you won't come at all. And, you know, that sounds very narrow to some people, and it is. But it's the way that leads to life. Take a look. The gospel, this salvation was first spoken through the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard. The, those who heard are the disciples, the apostles. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, 1 John 1, 1, what we beheld with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, we've seen, we've borne witness, we proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, 1 John 1, 1 and 2. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales, 2 Peter 1.16, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter, preaching in Acts 3.15, says, but uh, you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. I could go on, but I think you know the scriptures. Jesus preached it. He called his followers, and then he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will preach it. And they bore witness to it. You have the preaching of Jesus. You have the preaching of the apostles. You have the testimony uh, from the early church. 
But there's another plank of it. Look at it. It's in verse 4. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, mark this down, according to his own will. The preaching of Jesus, the preaching of the apostles in the early church, and the testimony of miracles are a threefold witness. And basically what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, is this. God has made it clear. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Now, the miracle of the resurrection is amazing. The miracle of the raising of Lazarus. The, the miracles that Jesus did of the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, lepers being cleansed, the woman with the flow of blood, the little girl who was dead. And he said, little girl, arise. We could go on and on. There seems to be gospel accounts where Jesus was healing people from morning until evening. Miracle upon miracle. He said, if you don't believe me, believe the signs that you've seen. How could one stand at the tomb of Lazarus and dismiss the power of Christ? Lazarus, come forth. Who does that? But then the apostles take the baton. And what happens there? In the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts, miracles occur through the hands of the apostles. Through Peter. Through Paul, uh, through Stephen, God continued to ratify and say, this is truth. When a miracle occurs today, please hear this well. When a miracle occurs today, God has a purpose for that miracle. Sometimes it's simply his compassion. Sometimes God does a miracle to open the eyes of an unbeliever. And sometimes he doesn't. Miracles, verse 4, happen according to his own will. Amen? Now, do I believe in miracles? Yes, I do. This book is going to say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does miracles for his purposes when he decides to do them. And that's what happened in the book of Acts. Paul prayed for certain people in certain contexts, and they were not healed. And in other places, people were healed. Why? Because God does things for his own will. That's what we got to know. It's not about formulas. There's been times when I felt like my prayer was relatively weak and God moved anyway. And there were times when I prayed with the utmost authority and my best Baptist Southern preacher voice. And nothing happened. Why? Because I'm not God. <laughs> Because I appeal to the sovereign God of the universe and he does what he's going to do and he knows best. And so here's the broader point. There's a witness. Jesus, the apostles, the signs and wonders. And today, when God does a sign or a wonder, why does he do it? Oftentimes, to bring someone into the kingdom or bring them back. Quick story Chuck Smith wrote a book called Living Water, and he was saying in the early days of Calvary Chapel, they had an outdoor meeting. I think it was an evening meeting. And a woman um, brought a friend of hers who was having, her marriage was in trouble. And so uh, there was some worship going on, and there was a little bit of waiting upon the Lord. And someone spoke in the gift of language, the gift of tongues. And someone else interpreted it. 
And so the service went on and, and the lady, they had agreed that the lady would come up and talk to Pastor Chuck after the service about her marriage. And so she said, before we talk about my marriage, I just need to know what happened there. That one lady stood up and then the other lady gave an interpretation and, and Pastor Chuck said, well, that was the biblical gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. She said, well, help me understand that. He said, well, the one lady spoke and the other lady interpreted and that's the gift. And she said, you know, I want to tell you something. That one lady spoke in perfect aristocratic French. Uh, I lived in France for five years, perfect aristocratic French. And the other lady perfectly interpreted what she said. And Pastor Chuck said, well, let me tell you something. I've known the one lady for 20 years and I know she doesn't know French. And the other lady is my wife. And I know she doesn't know French. <laughs> the lady that interpreted it. And that woman got saved and then she could deal with her problems as a born again believer. Here's, here's my point. Do you see what God was doing there? Why French? because the lady had lived in France for five years. And there was a manifestation of a biblical gift done the right way, done according to God's will, and it brought a woman to faith. There's a story of a, a pastor's conference up in, uh, I think it was the Big Bear area. There was another manifestation of this gift. There was a bartender, he, they weren't drinking at this pastor's conference, but he was on the clock and he was wiping down the bar. Somebody stood up spoke in Farsi, and there was no interpretation, so the pastor said, okay, if there's no interpretation, we're just gonna leave it there. The bartender was from Iran. The person who had spoken in Farsi spoke about the wonderful works of God. The bartender ends up getting saved at a pastor's conference just because he's on the clock. God was attesting to the gospel. These are true stories coming from very reputable sources. Here, here's the point. God has a heart to save the nations. And when there's someone around, I'm not saying that God does this all the time, but he'll, he'll often do something to grab somebody's attention. And sometimes he'll do something to call drifters home. Now, the final verse, a transitional verse says, for he did not subject to angels the world to come, the implication is that it's subject to the Son. He's the center of, of course, the whole New Testament, but the book of Hebrews, concerning which we are speaking. The world to come has been subjected. To whom? To Christ. Do you know, when you hear a preacher say, the only question you're going to hear when you stand before God is, what did you do with my son? I don't think is accurate. Let me tell you why. All judgment has been given to the Son. I think what you're going to hear is, what did you do with my message that I preached? And if you've read the Gospels, you know that some of the sadder um, stories say, the son will say to people, depart from me. I don't know who you are. Read that before? Depart from me. I never knew you. Now, what we want to hear is, well done, <laughs> good and faithful servant. Do you know, all judgment has been given to the Son, John 5. It's his. 
So if there is an opportunity for every individual to stand before God on that day, they will answer to the one who preached the gospel, the one who is the gospel, Christ. Amen? That's why knowing him is everything. Father, thank you for the fact that we have come to know this wonderful Savior. Thank you for the warning passages in the book of Hebrews because they are here for a reason. And we know all it takes to drift is really to do nothing. Help us to pay attention. Help us to be sensitive to what you're saying to us in our generation. And Lord, I don't think that this is really about committed believers who uh, need to worry or lose sleep. I think this is about people who live in a culture where the gospel has been clearly proclaimed but have neglected it. Maybe have had some exposure and drifted away from even bothering with it anymore. And the warning goes to them. Be careful. Pay attention. Because this saving gospel is just that. The gospel that saves. If you've not met Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're watching via live stream or here tonight. He is a prayer away. And if he's gotten your attention through his word, he's going to ask you to place your trust in him for your salvation. He came on a saving mission. The logical question is, what is he saved from? He saves from the wrath to come. He saves us from God's wrath. He saves us from the consequences of our sin. Won't you trust in him? Something like this, Lord Jesus, I believe in who you are. I believe in that saving mission that you came to accomplish. I repent of my sin. I'm sorry for it. Thank you that you paid for my sins at the cross, that you defeated death through the resurrection. I place my faith and my hope in you. Please forgive me. Make me your son, your daughter. Make me alive in Christ. Teach me to follow you all the days of my life. I pray in Jesus' name. And Father, for the wonderful group of saints here, may you continue them preaching the good news of the gospel and help us all stay close to you. In Jesus' name.